put the headphones on, click play, and I hear this music. And from the first couple seconds, it just runs through my veins. It is so haunting. Everything I was hearing was so visceral. It just touched me to my soul. I did not understand a word of what he was singing, but I could feel it was prolific. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so you don't miss out on future episodes. Joanna Stingray was only 23 years old when she first set foot in the Soviet Union and started meeting the now legendary musicians and artists of the Soviet underground. By 1985, she was writing and recording with them and smuggling their music to the West in order to produce the groundbreaking album Red Wave, four underground bands from the USSR. This is her testimony of youthful fortitude and rebellion, her love story, and proof of the power of music and youth culture over stagnancy and oppression. Joanna's book, Red Wave, written by her singer-songwriter daughter, Madison, includes Stingray's extensive collection of photographs, artworks, and interviews with the musicians. There's links in the episode notes. If you're enjoying the podcasts, I would really appreciate your donations to support my work and enable me to continue producing it. If you become a monthly supporter via Patreon, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Still not sure? Here's one of our financial supporters. I'm Tim from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially because of the great research and the quality of the storytelling. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. So, back to today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Joanna Stingray to our Cold War Conversation. I was just so proud, thought I had figured my life out. This is what I wanted. I saw my records being sold in Tower Records, and then it all fell apart. We kind of had a, a lawsuit with the manager over money that he had taken, a, you know, a, a, just a dispute, and it all fell apart. And it was at that moment that I was sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, my plan didn't work out. This is the first time in my life what I wanted didn't work out. What am I going to do? And I called my sister who was going to school in London and said, can I come visit you for a week? I just have to clear my head. Can I just come to London? She said, well, you can, but I'm going to Russia for a week. The minute I heard those words, Russia, I had a light bulb go off in my head because my father, who was not a filmmaker, did in the 60s spend a few years passionately making a documentary called Truth About Communism, a propaganda film against communism, the evil empire. And he was making it at home, splicing it. I remember the film being all over the floor. And I just remember from a very early age, always hearing the words, never go behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, the Soviet Union is the evil empire. So 
that reverberated, you know, back deep in my mind. And when I heard she was going to Russia, I said, can I go? And uh, lucky enough, there was room. I went on the trip to Russia. I thought it would just clear my head and then I could come back and figure out my life. And instead, Russia changed my whole life and put me on a new path. And uh, I'm forever grateful for that. Yeah, it just goes to show, you know, don't follow the advice of your parents. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Did you have a plan as to what you were going to do in the Soviet Union? No plan at all. You know, I just, again, I I thought it's going to be this awful place that my dad spoke about. So, of course, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, if my dad doesn't want me to go there, there must be something that'll be interesting. So I'm going to go, even if it's going to piss him off. Um, A week or so before I went, my best friend reminded me that her older sister had married a Russian emigre and that I should speak to him first. And when I did... He said, oh, you're a rock and roller. If you're going to Russia, you have to meet one of my best friends, the most famous underground rocker in Russia, Boris Gorbachev. He's like the Russian Bob Dylan. And I laughed because in 1984, I was 23 years old. The only information in America that we really uh, saw or heard about Russia was on the news. So it was all about this awful place and our arch enemy and all the scary things. So I, as every other American at that time, couldn't imagine there could possibly be any kind of rock and roll there. Um, Certainly anything that we would consider rock and roll, which would be good rock and roll. Um, But I did take the number, of course, not for Boris. And already it seems strange to me that Boris didn't have a phone. So here's some famous guy who doesn't even have a phone. Um, But it was cello player and and had it with me, wasn't sure if I was ever going to call Um, But I went there again just to get out of L.A., get out of hearing my mother say, what's your next plan? What are you going to do? You have to get a job. Uh, You know, it was kind of what I thought of as a good escape for a week. And could you speak any Russian? No, not a word. Not a word of Russian. What did your dad think about you taking this trip? (laughs) You know, he thought... uh, that I wasn't using prudence, that it was, uh, that it wasn't smart, that it was dangerous. And, you know, he, oh, Joanna, oh, Joanna, you know, you know, he was used to me. I was a very rambunctious child. So it wasn't uh, the first time I had done something that made his eyes rolls or, or roll or that he, uh, you know, thought wasn't the smartest thing to do. Um, but that's it. Kind of just, you know, expressing, his, his, you know, nervousness of me going to this place. Um, yeah. And how about your mom? You know, my mom probably wasn't thrilled either because my mother was very much, you know, you're 23 and you have to buckle down and you have to, you know, go on the traditional, traditional path of getting a decent job and dating. And, you know, she wanted me to date, you know, a successful man in Los Angeles. You know, she really wanted me to follow in her path. And and at that point she had remarried um, to a successful man. And she, you know, they had an art collection. They were very much part of the whole LA scene. And, you know, she was hoping that for me. So I'm sure she was a little disappointed that I found another distraction um, to get me off of that path that she thought I should have been on. Um, But again, I think both my parents knew that when I wanted to do something, it was hard to dissuade me. 
And and little did they know how much of a distraction it was going to be. Exactly, exactly. They they became more unhappy as as the trips kept coming and going and going and going every three months. Uh, you know, they they voiced more stronger disappointment and opinions as time went on. So you arrive in the Soviet Union. How do you? Well, how how did you make manage to make contact and get hold of Boris? Well, again, it wasn't really on my mind to meet him. We arrive in Moscow from the first minute we arrive. You know, it's what I expected. What we, you know, what was conveyed through Western films about Russia, the Soviet Union, and communism. It all seemed very cold. Walking through the airport and the fluorescent lights and the soldiers that were standing as if they were these, you know, you know, big stuffed bears. And, you know, everything was as if it was out of a movie. And when we were dropped off at our hotel, this huge Cosmos hotel, and nobody would really help us or direct us, where's our room? You know, right away, I kind of got this, what I would call Soviet experience. And I spent three and a half days in Moscow on the bus doing the tours. You were told that you were not supposed to leave the tours. So everything was, was, you know, as it was supposed to be, as they wanted us to see. And we would go around and, you know, it became very clear to me that it looked like a horrible place. It felt very cold weather-wise. The the feelings on the faces of the people, they're wearing dark blues and, and, and grays and blacks. You know, it just all looked very depressing. And I thought, boy, my dad for once is right. I'm, I'm never going to come back to this place. So by the time we got to Leningrad and we're going to have uh, the last three and a half days, I decided to not get on the bus and hear the rote rhetoric out of the tour guide and thought, what do I have to lose? Let me try to find this guy. So again, nothing is easy. There's no cell phones at that time. There's no internet. So I have to figure out how to call this guy Seva, his cello player, to meet him after a long struggle with the babushka who sits on every floor in the in-tourist hotel, I finally convince her through my gestures, because she doesn't speak English, to please dial this number for me. A woman answers. I, I'm all excited. Somebody answers. Hi, I'm Joanna. I'm from the U.S. I'm a musician. Click. And that was the first phone click of many, many times after that. And I didn't understand why the person hung up or why I got disconnected, had to convince the babushka again to redial the number. And this time there was a male voice who spoke uh, fluent English with this beautiful, soft accent. And it was Seva. And I said, uh, you know, Andre Falalev told me to get in touch with Boris. I'm a, from America. I'm a mus- musician. I heard he's a musician. And Seva um, said, okay, where's your hotel? Okay, we'll meet you at the Metro by your hotel at five o'clock. Thank you, and hung up. So again, this this was just all very new. I learned very quickly how there wasn't a lot of discussion about things. You know, you were given the information and that was it, and you had to figure things out. But it was extremely intriguing, uh, just everything uh, about the Soviet Union at that time. So uh, we went to meet them at the Metro at five o'clock. We have no idea what they look like. We have not seen photos. I, of course, had kind of a punk hairstyle, dyed blonde a little on the top and on the sides I had it shaved 
very, very short and had three kind of um, razor uh, edge spaces on my hair. I somehow thought that I was kind of punkish and thought, okay, this will be an interesting meeting because I'm going to bring my album cover of Beverly Hills Brat and I have a cassette of my music and I have some of my pro promo photos. So at least I'll have an exciting day uh, where um, I could impress them that I was an American rocker. It sounds like um, you didn't exactly blend in standing outside that metro station. I did not blend in. And I remember standing there with my sister and hundreds of people were coming from the depths up the stairs past us all in a rush, you know, with their with their, with their very, you know, stern kind of sad looking faces. And I kept saying to Judy, how are we going to know which one he is? Because there's so many people flowing by us. And just said, I think they'll they'll know who you are. So <laughs> it, it was obvious that I, I stood out a little bit. Um, but lo and behold, in the middle of this crowd of people swooshing by us, I lock eyes with somebody and he did not look like a rocker. He was dressed in the long tweed coat, had the fur hat on like everybody else. I couldn't see his hair. I just locked eyes with Boris and it, and it just was, you know, it was magical. I somehow knew this is him and this guy's going to change my life. I didn't know how yet. I didn't know what any of it was. But I did get a rush over my body that that this this was this was going to be something important. Um, we go back to Seva's, of course, from the metro. When we meet them, you know, we're being typical, warm, effusive Americans. Oh my gosh, it's so nice to meet you! Oh, that's so exciting! And, and they keep saying shh, shh, Seva. Boris really wasn't saying anything, but Seva keeps saying shh, and he's kind of grabbing our arms and pushing us along. And finally, we stop, and he explains to us that on the street. It's better not to speak English, that, that foreigners aren't really supposed to be mingling with Russians. So just to, to not say anything on the street. Boris is kind of just standing in the background smirking. And it was a smirk that I would, you know, come to love. And it was kind of a smirk that I learned that was Boris saying, yep, that's Russia. Yep, it's all crazy, but we put up with it. Um, so we go to Seva's apartment again, a, a big kind of cr concrete building that looks kind of worn. We go in and go in this creaky little uh, uh, elevator that we, the four of us squeezed into. You know, it was all just a little surreal. And again, I felt like I was in a film or from what I had, uh, uh, you know, seen that America was like in the 50s. It felt very, very uh, like I was back in time. And we go into his apartment and the first thing I notice is a bench right as you walk in and tons of these topki, which is the Russian word for slippers. And they're, you know, worn and some are torn, but a whole bunch of them. And Seva says, can you please remove your shoes and put on some topki, which were the slippers. And again, this was not a custom that we had in America. We walk around our house in our shoes. Um, but that was something that I became accustomed to there that I thought actually made a lot of sense to be taking off your shoes and not dragging all of the dirt and everything in from outside. Um, the next thing that happens is before we can even move into the apartment, into one of the rooms, oh, an older woman comes rushing by us to leave. And I said, oh, who was that? And Seva said, oh, that was my mom. And I said, oh, can we meet her? And he said, maybe another time. Again, all of these things in those first hours were indicative of time and time again, these behaviors I would see and people scattering 
away from us whenever we would come into different apartments uh, was was a protection of of them if they didn't see us that if they were ever questioned about the KGB and Boris had said many times after we left visiting Russians apartment, the KGB would come and question uh, the people about us. They could say, I didn't see her. What American? So, so, you know, it, it just was bizarre in so many ways. Um, but that first meeting with seven Boris was just so real in terms of just hanging with people. You know, they made tea. We went in this beautiful room with these big high ceilings in this apartment building. And we um, sat there and just chatted. And I played them my music. Boris listened on my Walkman with his headphones and was amused by my boys. They're my toys. He thought it was sounding very punk, which I was so pleased. Um, And it was just very warm from the beginning. It felt very natural uh, to be sitting with the two of them. They both, uh, were fluent in English. And, um, after they listened to my song and I got all this nice feedback, uh, you know, almost to be polite, I said, well, can I hear some of your music? And they explained to us that they, their music isn't put out officially on records, um, that it's recorded on two track tapes. So they kind of have these, uh, quarter inch tapes that they make up and, and somebody or their friends make a cover for it and they give it to a couple people and that just gets kind of... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Taken around and copied. And they did say that it even could be uh, copied up to a million times of the aquarium tapes, which I was a little surprised. But anyway, he had some of his news on cassette, so I put it in my Walkman to hear. Again, thinking this is going to be some, you know, very dull or embarrassing, not real rock. Put the headphones on, click play. And I hear this music, and from the first couple seconds, it just runs through my veins. It is so haunting and powerful, and the instruments are going on one headphone to the other headphone. I kept thinking, how could they do this on two-track? It was so amazing. And then Boris starts singing, and his voice is echoing, and there's so much feeling coming through his voice. Everything I was hearing was so visceral. It just touched me to my soul. I did not understand a word of what he was singing, but I could feel it was prolific. And the song just brought out so many emotions. The song felt so sad, but then it felt joyful. And it's it was dark, but then it was light and, and hopeful. And it just moved me in a way that I, I first of all realized my music was not real music. It was, it was naive. It was a little bit empty and that this was, this was what 
real rock and roll could be and how it could affect you so deeply. And that changed everything. That really comes across in, in the book is the, the impact this, this music has and how there's more emotion. It's from the heart. And as you said, visceral, even though you don't understand the language, you can understand the sentiments and the emotions in it. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, as we kept going back to Russia and interviewed Boris and all the other musicians uh, that we met, you know, it was apparent that that can happen with rock music because all of them were affected by the Beatles and they didn't know what those lyrics meant. So there is some power in music and even in lyrics that might not be your language that you still can understand how powerful they are. Um, You know, again, I went to Russia the first time at 23 years old. I grew up in Los Angeles. Los Angeles has no hardship. You know, everything here is easy. We don't even have the bad weather. You don't ever have to shovel snow. Nothing here is difficult. And I was very naive because now that I'm older, and of course, when I wrote the book, I understand that what gives you layers to your personality and who you are, are the hardships and the and, and the speed bumps we have to get over in life. And I didn't really have that. So I really was an empty slate when I went to Russia at 23 years old. And I really had no clue who I was as a person, had no clue what I wanted to do. And what I felt right away by spending time with these Russians is that I wasn't really living. You know, I was going through what I was supposed to. My mom wanted me to finish college, so I finished college. And I did some interesting things. I traveled a little bit. But I I really wasn't in the moment and experiencing life. And this is what I saw, and this is what I felt when I met all of these guys in Russia, all of these underground Russians. I I really right away felt that I had found something there that I was searching for. I didn't even know I was searching for it, but something that I needed. So it became, you know, kind of my oxygen that I needed to live. And that's why after that first trip, my whole focus was to get back there as quickly as often as I could. How how did the guys treat you? I mean, were were they suspicious of you and Judy at all? No, they weren't suspicious um, of us at all. And what's interesting is that there were other Westerners, almost all from Europe, that had come in and also called them. You know, if you if anybody at those days could get into Russia as a tourist and wanted to meet anybody cool. Everybody knew who Boris was. So eventually Westerners would hear about them. Very few Americans, I think, had been there and met him. So they weren't at all. They were very excited to see us. Um, They were very happy when they saw how our eyes lit up after I heard that first song of Boris's. So then from there, they just wanted us to show us what they could. And we had very limited time. But the first thing they brought us to is they said, if you could, do you think you can skip your tour again? Because we told the tour that we felt sick, we were going to sit at the hotel. And then we snuck out after they left. So, you know, it was a slippery slope of trying not to be found out and get in trouble for not staying with the tour, but being able to see the secret world behind closed doors that we found so intriguing. So um, that night, uh, we went out to see an underground concert. He, Boris said it wasn't a rock concert, but it was 
of his friend Sergei Kurokin and that Boris was going to be in it. And this, again, was something I had never seen. Um, you know, I was not old enough in the 60s. I was born in 1960. So I, I was not uh, part of the 60s music and hearing it and being part of that whole scene. And when I saw this concert, first of all, we're brought to this building. Um, somebody met us outside the hotel, a girl who would bring us to this place. And we go up in this building. And to me, it, if it, that building was in America, it would have been condemned. It looked like it was pieces of it were falling off. It just didn't seem stable. But lo and behold, we were brought into this big room and there's some plastic and different kinds of chairs set up. And there's Boris uh, with a cello in front of him. And then this guy, Sergei, with a saxophone around his neck and another guy on a saxophone and somebody on some other weird instrument. And I didn't know what this was at all. And the music started and I wasn't sure it was music. At first, I thought, boy, this is noise. What, what is this? And after a couple minutes, I, I totally had this epiphany, like, oh, my gosh, I hear it. I get it. And it was this incredible music that came out of chaos. And here's this leader of this performance, Sergei, who was a very different energy than Boris and Seva, who had kind of a mellow, very easygoing energy. And Sergei had this manic um, insane energy moving. You could even just see the thoughts clicking in his head. And I, I just, again, was drawn in. Everything I saw on that first trip just drew me in more and more and more that I had to come back. Uh, the next evening, they took us to a concert in one of the two halls that the underground bands could play. And we saw the band Strange Games that was a, kind of a ska band and Boris took us backstage and we met the brothers, Vitya and Grisha Salagub, the leaders of the band. And Vitya had all the scar makeup over his eye that looked like he had gotten tragically deformed. And Grisha had his hair up in a punk and this leather jacket with studs. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I have to hit myself. Wake up. Am I in Russia? You know, it just was unfathomable that I was there and it seemed like rock anywhere. So that was the first trip. The only time that I saw uh, the guys, especially Boris and Seva, a little weary uh, about us as foreigners is when I said, oh, my gosh, this is so amazing. I have to come back. What can I bring you? And they both kind of smirked a little. Seva rolled his eyes. And uh, I came to learn that everybody that had come from Europe, you know, and met them for one day or two days, was also smitten over them and the whole scene and also said they were going to come back and nobody ever came back. And so I said, no, 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 I want to come back. What can I do? How can I help you? And I remember leaving and saying goodbye to Boris and taking a glance back at him and him waving. I, I could tell by the look on his face, he was sure I was never coming back because you just couldn't, you know, we all have lives back home. You're excited by it. But once you get home, you're back into your own treadmill of your own life. Could, could you just describe the position of bands in the Soviet Union with an official band versus a unofficial band? Yeah. So when Boris started explaining about how they can't record, we started to ask more questions. And eventually I asked Boris to interview him that I taped in my Sony Walkman. I didn't know why, but I was just interested and he explained that in Russia, there were professional bands, and it meant that their official job in the Soviet Union was to be 
uh, in a rock band, but they were very controlled. Their lyrics were censored. Everything they did was censored, but it was also a job where they had to do what they were told to do. They had to tour all the time or play every night. And, and they, you know, it just was, was not a lot of freedom in, in, in their expression of what they were doing. So the underground bands in Russia were considered by the government amateurs, that they weren't good enough to be professional. So when the underground bands started in the 70s, first they were, you know, singing Beatles songs and Western songs. And then a few of the Russian musicians, Boris being one of them, which is why he's called the father of Russian rock and roll, started to write his own lyrics in Russian. When these bands started to um, become well-known and they couldn't officially record, they couldn't play in clubs, they couldn't be played on the radio. But what they did do is they played these home concerts in apartments. Um, somebody would squeeze in 50 people, 100 people, and they would come and play. And then they would release these quarter-inch tapes, like I said earlier, that would be copied over and over and over. And over time, these underground bands started to become very popular in Russia. And the government obviously started to hear about this and, and was nervous what was going on and, and wanted to have a little more insight to what was going on and obviously to have a little more control. So in 1981, under the um, guidance of the KGB, they opened the Leningrad Rock Club. And this was a club for the so-called amateur bands where they could come, they had access to some equipment, even though it was horrible equipment, but they could play some concerts there. Um, this way, the KGB could, could be there, be at the concerts, oversee what's going on. They were in contact with the director and, and the administration at the rock club. So they, they did that as a way to be in front of what they thought could become a problem. In the end, it probably wasn't the smartest thing to bring together all the rock groups, all the underground rock groups, you know, in Leningrad and put them all in one place. But obviously this club became a very infamous place. And, and over time there were more rock clubs in other cities, but that's how it all started. They still couldn't record officially. There was only one record label in Russia, Melodia, and they controlled everything. So if you didn't record on Melodia, you couldn't have a record put out officially. Um, but at least the rock club gave them a little bit of space to be able to perform and, and have people be able to see them live. So at the end of that first visit, you asked them what you can do to help. Correct. And so Boris says to me, he says, well, you know, there was this American here, this businessman uh, a few weeks ago that supposedly works with David Bowie. And of course, I was such a big fan of David Bowie. And when we first met at Seb's apartment and Boris took off his fur hat and his jacket, to me, he just had that same energy and the same look, this beautiful blonde hair and this, this smirky smile like Bowie. So there was resemblance already. So he said, this guy was here that supposedly is in contact with Bowie or works with Bowie. And he took my cassette back and I've gotten some information that Bowie liked my music and that maybe he wants to help. So why don't you call this guy and see if there's there's anything uh, that Bowie really wants to do? And I said, okay, but if you need something, what would you need? And he paused for a second and then he said, 
a Fender Stratocaster guitar. As if he had known his whole life. That's the one thing he needed. Um, again, after interviewing Boris and spending time with him, what also awed me was how all of the hardship and not having a lot of things, living in a communal flat, not having money to buy things, didn't seem to matter. It was all about the art, all about expressing yourself. And I was in awe of that. So it was interesting that when I did say, what would you want? He did in the back of his mind, hidden somewhere, had this vision of a Fender Stratocaster guitar. Um, so I left again with them thinking I would never come back, but I did contact this man that worked with Bowie and contacted Bowie's management office who did indeed confirm that Bowie uh, found his music uh, quite interesting and would love to help in some way and agreed to send me the money to buy the guitar, which I went to Guitar Center and bought this guitar for Boris. So not only was he surprised, pleasantly surprised, when I came back the second time to see him, I was holding a big guitar case and the look on his face when he opened it uh, was worth, you know, billions of dollars. I, I just, it, it, it was so great just to see him light up. And again, Boris of everybody I know in Russia is the least materialistic person ever, but, but this piece of wood and strings was a lifeline for him to be able to do his music and, and get the sounds he wants on a, on a much better level. But I think you had a problem with customs bringing it in. I did have a problem with customs. So I, I get to customs and I had no plan. Um, I just, I couldn't figure out what I was going to say or do. And once they found the guitar and they opened it up and they were looking, they seemed baffled. And, and of course, why would anybody going into a one week trip to Russia in, under communism be bringing in a guitar? And when I'm nervous, I have a tendency to speak very quickly and I just started rambling and I said, Oh, oh I'm so sorry. You know, I'm a musician after Russia, I have to go to Paris because I'm playing a concert and I need my guitar. It's my favorite guitar. It's the only one I plan. And I'm just rambling. I don't even think they understood English, but they were so annoyed by this, this excited female voice that I could tell uh, they just wanted to get rid of me. So they finally ask for my customs form and they start writing down all the information about the guitar, the color, what it looks like, the number on it and all of that. And they hand it to me, when leave, take. And I thought, okay, I, I, this, 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 I don't know what I'm going to do, but I was so excited to get it through. So in the moment, I just went. Um, give Boris the guitar. Within an hour or two, there's, you know, two people coming to his flat, coming to say hi but, and, and meet me. But really, it's about the guitar and two more people. Within an hour or two, there was about another 15 people that showed up in his little communal flat in his room. Everybody just ooing and eyeing over this guitar. Uh, you know, there's nothing. I couldn't have brought them a pile of gold. This guitar was was just, you know, the thing that was like everything to these people. Um I said to Boris, I'm so happy that you love the guitar, but unfortunately I'm going to ha have, have to take it out with me. And Boris in his relaxed, don't worry, it'll all get worked out manner said, have some tea, we'll figure it out. Um, and so at the end of that trip, I remember being at Boris's a couple hours before I had to leave for the airport. And I said, Boris, I'm so sorry. I've got to take the guitar 
And I, I, I promise I'll figure out how to get it back in another time. And he said, don't worry, don't worry. Africa and Tamora have it. They'll bring it soon. And Africa and Tamora I had met from that first day when they were one of the ones that came to see the guitar. And uh, they were artists. And they were also kind of uh, later on in the industrial, industrial percussion section of Kino. Um, but I'm sitting there and time's going on and Boris has his one leg, you know, over his other leg in his relaxed fashion, just enjoying speaking with me about life and things. And I'm, you know, trying to just discuss what else I can bring him when I come back again. And finally I said, Boris, I'm sorry, I, I have to get the guitar and go and income Africa and tomorrow with the guitar case. And I just start to say, I'm so sorry, I have to take it. And they put it down and open it. And I was flabbergasted at what I saw. And in first glance, it looked like the guitar. But after my eyes focused, I could see this was not the guitar. This was some piecemeal handmade guitar that they had put together to look very similar to the real guitar. And I, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, again, this was the first of many times their ingenuity showed through. And then I realized when you're living somewhere where you're not allowed to do things or get things, how much you, you become innovative to figure out how to, how to do it and how to get things. I was so impressed. And of course it made it easier that I came in through Moscow, left through Leningrad. So when they looked at my paper and the guitar, they opened it very quickly. Okay. The guitar and let me go. It wasn't hard at all. They didn't examine it. You know, if they picked it up, it probably would have fallen apart. (laughs) Anyway, that's, that's such a good story that I, I wanted to make sure I captured that one because it 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 sort of does illustrate so many things about the uh, about the Soviet Union. Can you tell me about the first time you saw Kino? Yeah, and it was actually a little bit later. So it was actually I think my third trip that Boris said, "Oh, you're here at such a good time. We have a festival at the Rock Club," and I thought, "Okay, great. I'd, I'd heard about the Rock Club. I hadn't seen a concert there yet." Same protocol, some girl we don't know uh, meets us to walk us to the rock club. I don't know what to expect. We end up being on a street that looks like every other street with a a building that's on every other street. Looked to me almost like an apartment building. The only difference is there's hundreds of people out in front that spill over into the street. And some of these people look hip, all kinds of people. There's young people, there's old people, there's people in suits, there's people in rock attire. It was just a very mixed kind of crowd. And so we are standing outside waiting with this girl that I guess is going to take us in and show us where to sit. And at some point, this guy ends up in front of me that has this bleach blonde hair up in front of his bangs like I do. And I immediately feel this connection. It's like, you know, one of the Disney movies where my heart's beating. Uh, I blink and he's gone. And I thought, okay, whatever. So we're in this crowd and I'm just kind of trying to understand it all. Like, who are all these people? You know, in the States, at most concerts, depending on who the artist is, you either have a bunch of young people or you have older people that are, depending on who the star is. And here it was so mixed that I really didn't understand what we were going to see. We were taken in and we were put in seats and the girl said, uh, first she took us backstage and uh, we went backstage and we went into the dressing room with Boris and his band aquarium. And again, you were at a rock concert anywhere in the world, you know, their friends are back there. The wives are there and everybody's trying to get ready. And they're, they're trying to put on makeup and the women are trying to pin things on their outfits to make them 
look more more you know flamboyant and 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 like a rocker it was a typical behind the scene backstage atmosphere of anywhere and i again the thought would go in my mind every once in a while is this really russia am i really here because it just it just felt like an oxymoron that i could be in russia standing in backstage with these rockers you know before a rock concert it just felt abnormal like it, it shouldn't be happening there uh, we're taken to our seats. We're told not to speak English and they'll come get us after to bring us backstage. Um, before we leave the backstage before the concert, somebody there uh, uh, takes us to show us down the hall that there was a store you could just push open and that would go to the back out in the hall, would go outside and you can get to the street, a very, a, a much quicker, easier way to get outside than to go back through the hall that we could do that after the concert. I thought, okay, great. So we're putting our seats again. It's a packed hall. There's people even sitting kind of squished in the aisles up in these alcoves. It was just a full hall. You could feel the energy that these people were very excited for these bands that obviously they love these bands and we saw the first band was uh, Zoo Park, which was a very famous uh, underground uh, Russian rock band. The leader, Mike Namenko, was also started with Boris, one of the first Russians to write lyrics uh, in Russian. And, you know, they were really cool. They were kind of like a Rolling Stones rock with some blues in it. He had the mirrored aviator glasses. And, you know, the crowd went crazy. And I thought, wow, this is this is rock. This is this is really you know, rock and the people are acting like rockers. They're standing up, you know, screaming with their hands. It really wasn't different than any other rock concert I'd been in the West. Um, the second band comes on and the music starts and it's dark and the music is like pulsating and strong and captures me right away. And the light goes on the singer and it's this guy standing with this very, um, strong vertical stance staring out at the crowd and his eyes were Asian and he had just a magnetic energy and the audience was just all focused on him. He like just pulled you in. It was as if he hypnotized you and he started playing and singing and, and he would, he was just amazing. There was just something about him uh, that was just magnificent. And then I remember looking over to the guitar player and seeing the guy that was in front of me in the street with the blonde bangs. And again, everything in my mind went silent and my heart's just beating at this guy on the stage that I thought was so cute. But I really enjoyed their music. And what was interesting about Kino was that of all the Russian bands, they really had hooks in their songs. Again, I didn't know any Russian and I would be sitting there listening to his songs and all of a sudden without knowing it, I was singing along. And I'm thinking, what am I saying? What am I singing? I literally would be singing the songs. So, so it, it was very, very catchy, probably again, the closest to, to Western rock music that it had the hook on the chorus that would kind of pull you in. So I was very taken by, by that band. And then the last band was Boris, of course. And they came out and they had the guitar that I had given them, which of course just made me uh, feel so fulfilled that somehow I was part of it. And the crowd went so wild that I realized, oh my God, 
not only am I lucky enough to really see a secret part of Russia that nobody in the West knows about, nobody in America knows about, but I am, am hooked up with like their leader, like their Messiah. So I just was, you know, totally taken by the concert. It was amazing. And Aquarium was incredible because they would play kind of almost a rock song that could have some driving, almost punk in it. And then he would do an acoustic song. And then he would do maybe just a real stripped down hymn with acoustic guitar. You know, they did so much different styles almost, but you could tell that the audience lived for every word that came out of this guy's mouth. I mean, I just the importance of Boris and his words and his music was so apparent um, at that first concert that I really realized how lucky I was to know this guy. And it just strengthened my resolve to want to be near him as much as possible. You know, the only way I can describe it is that Boris had the light and everybody wants to be near the light. So I, I just had this inner, inner drive to want to be near him. After the concert, we go backstage. And again, very typical scene. People are opening bottles of champagne. Everybody's laughing. You know, the guys are hot, so their shirts are off. They're changing right in front of people. You know, it, it had a very uh, kind of hippie vibe to the aquarium room. There's tons of people there. And just all of this, you know, kind of hanging together is happening. And I just felt so, so happy to be part of it. Out of nowhere, somebody comes in and whispers something to Boris. And Boris says to my sister and I, the KGB's back here. You guys have to go. And we just look at each other. Again, we're on a high. Our energy's flowing. And we look and we're like, okay. And we go in the hall and we start kind of walking quickly down to the store they had showed us to leave. But we're looking at each other just, just laughing giddy because we just can't believe what we just saw, what we were part of. I mean, it was so fantastic and never in our wildest dreams did we expect something could be like that in Russia. So we're on a high going to the door and we're moving and moving. We got this momentum and we push the door and boom, it's like we hit a brick wall. It doesn't open. It is now locked. And you could see, feel the blood moving out of our bodies. I looked at my sister and she was basically white and, and neither of us knew what to do. And we turned around and we saw this strange guy in a suit. I had assumed anybody in a suit at the concert was KGB, which I was wrong. Some of the most intellectual, famous poets and artists and rockers in Russia wear suits. But I assumed anyone in a suit. But we see this guy kind of slip into a room and the two of us just took off towards the hall. Right away, I, I lose my sister because I'm not focusing on her. She's not focusing on me. We're focusing on getting out of the hall. We get back in the hall and we see you know, a whole bunch of people towards the doors getting out, the last hundred or so people. So we're just focused on getting into this group of people to be able to get out the doors and get out to the streets. I go through the hall and com completely laser being focused on just go straight ahead to this group, to this group, to all these people. I get to the people, I'm right about to take two steps and go through and be outside and out of nowhere, Two guys grab each of my arms and shoulders and drag me off to the left. 
And on that cliffhanger, don't miss the next part of Joanna's conversation, which will be live next week. There's further information such as photos and videos in our episode notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.